Hey, morning. Most of us have got friends who are really quite different from ourselves. That's part of the beauty of friendship, I guess, is like people who are really different, kind of uh, bringing the best out of each other. Sometimes you make a friend who basically is yourself. Have you got a friend who's like really, really similar to yourself? I've got this one friend, a guy called Kevin. He's exactly my age. I had a significant birthday earlier this year. So did he. He's tall and loud. People tell me I'm tall and loud. Uh, he leads a church and is excited about planting lots of new church venues across his city, Chicago. Uh, I lead a church and I'm excited about planting venues across London, seeing lots of people saved. Um, he, uh, so I'm a guy with lots of kids. I have four kids, which means when I go out in London, people look at me like I'm a freak for having so many children. He's gone one further. He's got five kids, so he makes me feel a bit better. Um, we've got loads in common. He's really into Premier League football, although his team got relegated. I'm really into Premier League football. We just got... He stayed at our house um, end of May, and I was just really struck by the fact that this guy is basically me, just living in Chicago, and I'm living in London. We had a wonderful time. He came to Everyday Church, was at our services. I asked him to address the senior leadership of Everyday Church, tell us what he's doing in Chicago, really excite us. Like a guy with such passion and energy and a sense of mission from God, just absolutely amazing. Went back to Chicago, Two weeks later, it was the first day of the World Cup finals, the football uh, World Cup finals. He tweets in the morning about how much he's looking forward to the World Cup beginning. And he leaves work on his way to watch the first match in the World Cup. And as he comes to an intersection, uh, basically he's hit by a hit and run driver on his scooter. He flies through the air, lands on his head, wearing a helmet, but massive brain damage. And for the last three months has just been in hospital unable to talk, unable to walk, unable to get up. His, his oldest daughter's just had her 16th birthday party and he wasn't able to be there or even to speak to her, to say happy birthday. So I'm, I'm telling you this just to confess to you really, I am thinking all the time these days, how can a loving God allow such suffering? I, I know all of us have got different things going on in our lives. I'm not trying to pretend that what's happening with my friend Kevin trumps what's happening in your life. It's just my example. You've got your own example. Do you not find there are loads of times in life when you find yourself asking this question? Like, my kids got to know Kevin. He stayed at our house. So I've been telling them what's happened to him. I've been showing them a little video of him struggling to talk and even to swallow food and not being able to. And together we're praying and saying, God, please heal him, restore him to his family. But even as we're saying it, I find myself all the time saying, God, what are you playing at? He's a good guy. Why has this happened to him? And I guess we all get like that, don't we? I love the Alpha course. I'm so excited about this new Alpha course that we're running together. Um, the truth is I know that one of the big questions that will come up on just about every table is how can I believe in God when this kind of stuff happens? Don't know what it is in your life. We'll have a chance to pray for one another at the end of this message and in some ways just respond about what's happening in our own lives. But like this week, just getting a message from a really good friend of mine. He and his wife have just miscarried yet again. It's, they're such a lovely couple. If, anything, if anyone deserves something good to happen to them, it's them. And yeah, it doesn't always work out that way. 
And so this Jesus on the Couch series, if you missed the first few Sundays, is basically a series of us throwing our toughest questions at Jesus. When you open the Gospels, the four accounts of Jesus' life by his closest followers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you discover that Jesus doesn't get offended when people ask him their tough questions. He actually loves it. He encourages us to ask him the questions we've got. And the idea behind Jesus on the couch is when you read the Gospels, you discover he doesn't try and wriggle out of our tough questions. He he answers our questions. He gives us real answers to our really difficult questions. And Jesus on the couch is just an invitation to spend half an hour each Sunday for a few weeks stopping and asking Jesus the questions that really matter to us and being honest enough to listen to his answers. You see, all of our big questions, Jesus addresses. The Gospels are more relevant to our lives than the latest Sky News bulletin from this morning. It's, it, Jesus spoke into the situations that we live in, and Jesus on the couch is an opportunity for us just to stop and listen to what Jesus has to say. I mean, I, I bet if we kind of handed around the microphone this morning, every single one of us would have some kind of example that makes us want to ask this kind of question. How on earth do we answer it? I think the way I answer it is to get into the Gospels and discover Jesus. I think the first thing I discover when I look at the way Jesus dealt with this question is, it's that actions speak louder than words. When we're asking this kind of question, we're kind of asking it at two levels. There is like the whole philosophical, intellectual question, how can God allow suffering? You know, the thing which kind of says, either God is powerful enough to stop suffering, but doesn't love us enough to bother, or he loves us, but isn't powerful enough to stop it. There's like this whole philosophical question that goes on, and that is part of it. But do you know what? It's more than that, isn't it? When we ask this question, we're not just expressing what we think with our heads. We're expressing what we feel with our hearts. And I, in some ways, I just want to encourage you to get the answer from Jesus, not just by the words he says, but also by the things he does. See, Jesus began his public ministry in 27 AD by standing up in a synagogue in Nazareth and by quoting from Isaiah 61. This great passage, he says, this is a prophecy about what I've come to do. He says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Right from the outset, Jesus sets out that what he's come to do is to get alongside those who are suffering and help them. You look at what Jesus did. He's famous for getting down in the dirt with prostitutes and lepers and tax collectors and refugees and immigrants and, and the poorest beggars in the land, the people nobody wanted to hang out with, Jesus got down in the dust with them. I mean, you read the Gospels, these four accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, and you discover he totally shocked people by what he did. Mark chapter 1, right at the start of Mark's Gospel, there's this guy, he's a leper. It's like the most contagious disease of the day. And the rule is, if you are diagnosed with leprosy, you have to tear your clothes, you have to live outside the city. If anyone comes near you, you have to shout, unclean, unclean, to tell them to stay away from you. 
And this leper comes to Jesus and says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And right at the start of Mark's gospel, it just says, Jesus reached out his hands and touched him. It's like those who are suffering, the untouchables of the world, Jesus comes and embraces them. Jesus, in this passage, he quotes in the synagogue in Nazareth. He carries on. He says, I have come to proclaim freedom for captives, release from darkness for prisoners. I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I've come to comfort all who mourn. I've come to provide for those who grieve. I've come to give people joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And this passage continues to Isaiah 63 verse 9. And I just love this. It just says, in all their distress, he too was distressed. I mean, you must want an answer to this question. We all do. The place you find it is looking into the face of Jesus Christ and seeing him again and again in the Gospels. Someone comes to him in great need and it just says things like, he had compassion on them and reached out his hand. Having compassion on them, he spoke You've got to get, this is a description of Jesus. In all their distress, he too was distressed. I find this incredibly helpful. I get distressed. Yeah, I might not suffer as much as you, to be honest. I'm not trying to trump you with my experience. It doesn't matter whether you've suffered lots or suffered little. It still feels like a lot. Haven't you noticed that? It doesn't matter what it is that's going on in your life. It just can be all-consuming. And I, I love this description of what God is really like. In all your distress, God's distressed. And he's done something about it. When you read about what Jesus said, in addition to what he did, you discover in his teaching, you discover three things that he beckons us to look at, to try and get an answer to this question. I just want to help you to see what Jesus wants you to see, and then we'll have a chance to respond to him. The first thing Jesus wants us to see is God's suffering, God's own suffering. I'll just be honest with you about how ridiculous I can be sometimes. A few months ago, I had something really bad happening in my life. It was the thing that I thought of when I went to bed. It's the thing I thought of the moment I woke up. You know, it's the thing that was just in my mind all the time. I was in agony over some stuff that was happening in my own life, my own family and stuff. And uh, I got off the train at Rains Park Station and I'm like praying as I'm walking along. I'm surrounded by the crowd and I just am praying in my heart saying, Jesus, you don't understand the agony I'm going through. If only you understood the cross I have to bear. And then I felt a bit embarrassed, to be honest. When you talk to Jesus about bearing crosses, it helps you to understand. Jesus understands. Jesus didn't just come to get down in the dirt with us as we suffer. Jesus came to suffer more than any of us. It's like when we ask this question, it's not a reason for us to shake our fists at God and reject him. It's a reason for us to open up our hearts to God and receive him. God has suffered more than we have. My crosses that I bear are mere metaphors. The cross that Jesus bore was solid and real and wooden, and blood-stained. No one suffered more than Jesus. Just a reminder if you know about the life of Jesus, or, or maybe just to challenge you if you don't know much about the life of Jesus. Jesus was born in a manger. You know that, the Christmas story. He's the rejected baby of Bethlehem. The moment he's born, he's told there's no room for him. 
He's put in a feeding trough with cows and sheep because nobody wants him. Uh, in Jewish society, you had to offer a sacrifice when a baby was born. And if you were rich, you'd offer a, a cow or a bull. Or if you were a bit more middle class, you offer a sheep or a lamb. And there was like a gradation of what you should offer depending on how poor you are. And basically, if you were almost bankrupt, you were so poor, you could offer two doves. Jesus' parents offered two doves. He's born into poverty. And what's worse, King Herod hears that the king of the Jews has been born and starts trying to kill all the babies in Bethlehem. So within weeks or whatever of his birth, Jesus is forced to become a refugee, an asylum seeker in Egypt. His mother and Joseph's not really his dad. God's his dad. But Joseph played the role of dad for him. His parents take him to Egypt in even more poverty. You've got to understand what it was like for Jesus. It's not like Jesus looks down on our suffering and helps us. Jesus got down into the suffering with us. He got down into the pit with us so that he could lead us out. When Jesus was a child, he was despised as an illegitimate baby. When Mary told people the story, yes, I'm pregnant before my wedding day, but the Holy Spirit came and I conceived the Son of God, her neighbors were like, yeah, right. Nice one. We've all studied biology in school. Keep on the, the stories, Mary. We don't believe you. This is what Jesus grew up in, a highly conservative society where he's known as the illegitimate child. When he's a teenager, probably, his, uh, his so-called dad, Joseph, dies. He knows what it's like to be bereaved. He knows what it's like to see his mum crying and on her own. He knows what it's like to live in a family that is going through family suffering together. When he's in his 20s, he knows what it's like for everybody else's dreams to be coming true and your dreams not coming true. He lived in a conservative society where people got married young and by his late 20s, he's the only guy that hasn't got married in the village. He's the only single guy. He hasn't got children in a society which despises infertility and makes out that having kids is the be-all and end-all of life. In fact, when it prophesies about Jesus in Isaiah 53, it talks about his sufferings and includes this, who can speak of his descendants? He knows what it's like to suffer. And then he preaches his first sermon, 27 AD, this sermon I've just read to you where he's saying, the Spirit of the Lord's on me to help those who suffer. The response of the synagogue in Nazareth is to try and lynch him at the end of his message. For the next three years, he's hated. People plot against him, try and take his life. And then in 30 AD, one of his best friends, Judas Iscariot, betrays him. He's arrested, he's whipped, he's beaten, he's taken and he's nailed to a cross and he dies. Now three days later, he's raised from the dead and he explains to his disciples why these things had to happen. But don't rush to that point. Understand what Jesus' life was like. Jesus says to us, I see your suffering. I want you to see my suffering. In Lamentations 1 verse 12, it prophesies. This is, these are the words of Jesus prophesied in Lamentations. It says this, Look around and see, is there any suffering like my suffering? It's like, where do you look? Where do you go to when you ask the question, how can God allow this stuff to happen in my life? Jesus says the first place to go is to look at Jesus' suffering. I'm so glad I don't follow any of the make-believe gods of the world. I don't worship Allah, 
stuck in the comfort of heaven, issuing edicts from his comfortable palace, or the medieval uh, pantomime god who kind of is in the cloud somewhere, occasionally pointing a finger down to issue commands. That's not the god we worship. We worship the real gods, the god who has stepped into our suffering shoes so that we can step into his footsteps as he leads us out. This should encourage you if you've asked this question. Jesus says, yeah, you could ask me the same question about why I allowed my own son to suffer. But if God can use the cross of Jesus for good, you can trust him in the midst of your suffering. That's the next thing. The second thing Jesus talks to us about is the wisdom of God. When you suffer, it's really hard to trust that God knows best, isn't it? I, again, let me just confess my own complete frailty to you. Maybe it'll somehow encourage you. A couple of nights before my university final exams, I broke up with my girlfriend. Uh, I, I remember it being mutual, which probably means she dumped me. You know what it's like with memory. I just remember it being excruciatingly painful. And I took it like a man. I lay on my bed and I cried. And I pounded the mattress with my fists and I said things like, God, what are you playing at? Call yourself a good God? Then why does this happen? And a couple of nights before the biggest exams of my life, is that some kind of joke? You, of course, you'd never have done that kind of thing. I find when you suffer, even like the Psalms, to be honest, I said some stupid things. I said things like, if I were God, I wouldn't have done that. What do you think you're playing at? Well, of course, because I'm not God. And I don't understand the wisdom of God. But when I read the Psalms, it's like God gives us permission to tell him how we really feel. If you're suffering at the moment, and this is highly relevant to you, God's not saying to you, stiff up a live, old chap. He's saying, tell me how you really feel. Express it to me. I, I said some things I shouldn't have said, but I have no regrets that I said what I said. A relationship with God is about being honest with him about how you're doing and how you're feeling. But here's the funny thing about my tantrum when I broke up with my girlfriend just before my finals is a few years later, benefit of hindsight, I look back on the moment that I considered God's greatest act of cruelty, the thing which I thought was disaster in my life, and I thank God for what happened. I mean, there were some amazing adventures God had in store for me, which I needed to go through. They were like life-shaping things I could never have done unless I was single. God knew best. The reality is, God knew best. If I'd married that girl, she would have made me miserable. She really would. But I'll tell you what, I would have made her a whole lot more miserable, I'm sure. You look back and you think, at the time, it looked like God was being so mean to me. And I daily thank God that he knew best. But here's the thing. If a few years extra hindsight enables us to look back on things and say, God knew best, how much more must the wisdom of God make sense if we just got a bigger grasp of God? And Jesus, who suffered far more than any of us, really models for us what it is to trust the wisdom of God. Jesus is God. And yet, as the Son of God, in order to model living a life of suffering for us, he deliberately didn't know everything that God the Father knows. When he became a man, he made the decision he wouldn't know everything his father knew, but he would trust his father to demonstrate to us how we can trust God. 
Jesus is forever saying things in the gospel like John 5.30, by myself I can do nothing. John 7.15, my teaching is not my own. John 8.28, I do nothing on my own. I only speak what the Father has taught me. Matthew 26, verses 38 to 39, Jesus says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. My Father, if it's possible, may this cup of suffering be taken away from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus modeled for us what it is to fix your eyes on the greatness of God and say, if God's big enough to blame for my suffering, he's also big enough for me to trust in the midst of my suffering. I mean, this is in some ways, quite a hard thing just for us to get intellectually. It's, it's like a spiritual thing. It is the essence of faith. If you don't trust God in the tough times, do you really trust God at all? And I want to help you to get this. And I think probably the easiest way for me to help you to get it is just to show you a two-minute um, little video clip from a, just from a, a talent show in the US. Which is just, I'll just show it, and it would maybe help you to get some of what I'm trying to say. Come on out, Dee. So what is your talent? What will you be performing today? I'm a speed painter, and I'm going to do a painting in a minute and a half or less. Okay. All right, All right. here Excellent. we go. Let's hear it for Dee Westry. Maybe you saw it faster than I did. But for me, life is a bit like that. You kind of see this mess going up. At one point, Sharon Osbourne says, it looks like a potato. And I think she's right. Life, sometimes it just looks like a mess. And you cry and you say, God, what on earth are you doing? And then suddenly, God turns things around. See, the third thing Jesus encourages us to look at is like God's perspective on the world. There's coming a day 
when Jesus will come back and I don't know what's happening in your life, you do, but there will come a moment when Jesus will come back and it will be like that moment at the end of painting that potato when everything gets turned the right way up and suddenly you see it's like the gasp moment when you think, God, it looked rubbish. It's a masterpiece. And Jesus wants us to have that perspective now. Jesus wants us to get that. The story of the Bible, the message of the Bible is basically helping us to get God's perspective right here, right now. Jesus modeled it for us. It says in Hebrews 12, verse 2, Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Weird verse. It says that the cross, like the greatest act of suffering in history, Jesus considered it joy because he saw God's perspective, what was being accomplished through it. He saw that the reason the suffering in the world is because sin has entered the world. The devil has free reign in the world to muck up lives and he's very busy at doing it. And Jesus came to die as the sin offering of God. To, like, like sucking snake venom from a wound. He sucked the devil's venom out of this world so that the sin and the suffering and the misery of this world could be replaced by the paradise of God. Jesus is coming back. He'll remake the world. And the reason he can remake the world is because he died to pay the penalty for your sin and my sin. He died to be able to set things right. When he rose from the dead, it was the first act of God's new creation. And one day, just as he was reborn out of the tomb, this world will be reborn out of the ashes of the old one. And Revelation says there'll be no suffering, no tears, no death. It will be like the Garden of Eden, only better. That's where we're headed. And Jesus said, I, I, I'm willing to take this suffering for the sake of you, and for the sake of me, because I see the perspective. And Jesus' invitation to people who suffer, he's constantly surrounded by sick crowds, by poor crowds, by people whose lives are a mess. They flock to him because they know he's the answer to people in their suffering. And he teaches them and he tells them this parable in Luke chapter 16. He says, there was a rich man and a beggar. The beggar lived off the scraps that fell off the rich man's table. The beggar had festering wounds on his body. Jesus gets quite graphic. He says the dogs used to come and lick his festering wounds. It's like a horrible picture. And then Jesus says the two men died, and the beggar went to be with God in heaven, and the rich man went to hell. And you think, what are you, what are you saying, Jesus? Are you saying that God doesn't like rich people? No, not at all. What God's saying is get perspective on your suffering. Jesus is saying, you read the story, you think, rich man, lucky, beggar, massively unlucky. Jesus turns the painting the right way up and says, you know what? The rich man was so comfortable, he never looked up and cried out for the better world which God has in store for us. The beggar constantly longed for that world. He wasn't consumed with himself. He was consumed with God because he knew he had nothing other than God to cling to. Jesus says the suffering beggar was the lucky one when you get God's perspective. We live in a really comfortable generation. I know 
you know, we all suffer terrible things, but we're also very comfortable. The biggest danger for all of us is that life would just be so pain-free that we never look up and say, God, I need you. That we never say, as we do when we suffer, we, that we would never say, there must be a better world than this. I wasn't born for this. When we say to God, how can you allow such suffering? What we're actually saying is, God, I know there must be a better world than this instinctively, and I long for it. I think when Jesus comes back and turns the picture of our lives the right way up, many of us will realize that the things we cursed God for were the greatest blessings God ever gave us. The things that made us question God's plan were right at the heart of God's plan. It doesn't make it easy, but it does mean that with Jesus, we're able to even rejoice with joy in the midst of suffering. If you're not a Christian and you think, how could I ever follow Jesus when God's treated me this way? God's treated you like the beggar in the parable. He's brought you to a place where even this morning, you can turn to him and say, I need you, God. If you're a Christian and you think, I, th I thought following Jesus was going to be a bit easier than this. Some of what you're going through is God's love for you. God has such a plan for your life. You, you can't even get the plan God's got for your life. But some of the worst things that you're going through are some of the golden moments in what God's doing in your heart, in your character, in your life. There's going to be a great day when Jesus comes back. And the paintings turn the right way up and we will gasp with admiration and amazement when we suddenly see God's perspective. But before then, Jesus sits on the couch with us and answers our question and says, will you trust me? Will you trust the fact that I suffered more than you and God used it for good? Will you trust God to be wise enough to lead your life in the way it should go? Will you trust that the Bible gives God's perspective on your life? And the more you understand the message of the Bible, the more you will be able to cope with whatever life throws at you, will you? I believe Jesus just wants to work in our hearts now. I, I just want to stop. I'll, I'll just pray and then we'll go into a time where we can all respond to God. God's wanting to answer your intellectual questions, but this is not just an intellectual question. God wants you to get deep down in your spirit that Jesus looked down on you even as he died on the cross. He looked and saw your sufferings and is here for you this morning. Let me pray. Jesus, I thank you that you know best. I thank you that some of the worst things that have happened to us will prove to be some of the best parts of your plan. I pray, Lord, you'd help us to get that, even as we respond now. Help us to get it ourselves. And I pray, Lord, that this church will be a place where those who are suffering, those who have got big questions, those who are in need, will come and discover the God who loves them and who gets down in the dirt with them, and who brings healing and hope and perspective. And we ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.